there's nothing you're going to offer as the EU that, you know, they, they can't even bail themselves out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you have to offer. You don't bring anything. You, you, you bring sort of these fake women's empowerment programs and workshops to countries around the world. You're not building ports and airports and schools. I mean, they'll do these little tiny projects, but they're not doing very much. Secondly, you bring the EU, you bring this racist, dominating attitude. Joseph mm-hmm. Burrell, the EU foreign policy chief, said it himself a few months ago that uh, Europe is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle. Right. Mm-hmm. And people in Africa, people in Asia, people in the Arab world don't want that. They, we had that, thank you. We do not want Europeans coming from their garden and telling us how civilized they are and what we have to do in order to get civilized like them. Because we tried that in the 19th century, the 20th century, and before, and no thank you. We don't want to go back to that. But the bigger question is, why does it have to be a competition? Why is it Europe and the West against China and against Russia? Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. It's a new era of global power dynamics, where countries sometimes have the option to say no to the U.S., Nowhere is this more apparent than in the Middle East, where regional shifts are taking place at warp speed. To the chagrin of American think tankers and regime changers, almost 12 years after being kicked out of the Arab League, Syria has been welcomed back into the fold by many of the same U.S.-allied countries that tried to destroy it. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, at the recent Arab summit in Saudi Arabia, spoke of the new multipolar world that's giving space for this regional shift. While U.S. policy has promoted chaos and war, more and more countries in the global south, including U.S. client states like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, are jumping at the opportunity to gravitate towards China and Russia, while Zelensky tours the world but fails to get the global south on his side. The Arab summit came after China oversaw a Saudi-Iran detente that's led to peace in Yemen, as Russia and Iran oversee peace negotiations between Turkey and Syria. All this time, Israel was banking on normalization with Saudi Arabia, and the opposite happened. Why? What does this multipolarity mean for the Middle East? How might it impact Palestine and the broader resistance axis? Here to discuss this and more is Ali Abunima, executive director of the Electronic Intifada and author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. And as always, be sure to hit the subscribe button and the bell so you get a notification whenever we post new content. And if you appreciate this show, you can also donate below on YouTube. Ali, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Rania. It's my pleasure. It's always so much fun to have you on. And I'm always excited for our conversations uh, because you always have such such insight to offer uh, that people love to hear. So let's start with probably the most uh, newsworthy element of what we're going to be discussing. And that is the recent developments surrounding Syria's return to the Arab League after almost 12 years of having been kicked out of it. Um, 
And, you know, it was interesting to see this, of course, happen in Saudi Arabia. Syria kind of took a bit of a victory lap. Uh, Assad gave this speech where he sort of gloated and spoke about a multipolar world, having brought about this sort of this moment where Syria is back uh, amongst many countries that did try to destroy it. So I guess let's start with, you know, from your viewpoint, what is the significance for Syria and uh, this return to the Arab League fold? And then I think more importantly, what's the significance for the region and in particular the, the resistance axis of the region? Yeah, in a narrow sense, I think it's a recognition that the uh, decade-long effort led by the United States, supported by Israel and supported by the Gulf states, to overthrow the government of Syria and replace it with, I don't know what, Jabhat al-Nusra or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham or one of those other um, Al-Qaeda-linked groups, has failed. And... I think the first thing to say is it's failed at an incredible cost in human life and human suffering. Uh, but Bashar al-Assad's return to the Arab fold and to the Arab summit is also basically uh, a recognition or a sign that the war in Syria is over, except for just the little pocket in the north, the Idlib region, which is still controlled by Turkey. And of course, the United States still occupies a part of uh, northeastern Syria. But the U.S. presence is increasingly irrelevant and I think will eventually wither away as well. Um, and so there's that recognition that this totally failed. I think the bigger picture is that this is also a reflection of broader geopolitical shifts that we're going to talk about. But within the region, I think it's a return to uh, Saudi Arabia playing an independent political role, not acting completely as simply a vassal and a client of the United States. Of course, Saudi Arabia still is closely tied to the United States. But I think the Saudis have realized that the long-term survival of their regime depends on a completely different approach. Putting all your eggs in the American basket is dangerous. And history tells you that it doesn't end well. We've seen that for U.S. client and puppet regimes all over the world for the last 80 years since World War II, Vietnam, uh, U.S. puppet regimes all over the world, more recently Afghanistan. Um, you could point to Hosni Mbarak, the dictator of Egypt, who was a close and loyal ally of the United States, but that didn't save him. Mm. Uh, Qaddafi in Libya had uh, basically switched sides and joined the Americans and handed everything over to them, they still came in and killed him and overthrew him. I mean, even Syria, you could say there's a similar story because Assad was willing to cooperate with the United States in the so-called war on terror after 9-11, but the United States still uh, waged a brutal proxy war against uh, him and against uh, Syria. So... I think the Saudis look at that and they say, 
our long-term interests are not served by solely tying ourselves to Washington. We need to have our own uh, uh, independent policy. We need to have alliances with other countries, partnerships with other countries, and not just dance to Washington's tune. So potentially, I think it's too early to say, but for the past uh, decades, the Arab League has been nothing. It's been completely uh, just a paper organization that implements orders from Washington and is completely dysfunctional. So this also portends a potential revival of the Arab League as a significant political forum in some form. I don't I don't want to exaggerate that mm-hmm. because it's still the Arab League and you know uh, but these are the we can talk more about the sort of shifts from the Saudi perspective but th- that I think is kind of the view from 30,000 feet. Right. And then I'm just curious your view of like the importance of having a country like Syria back in the the fold, what that might mean for the broader uh, resistance groups across the region? Well, I think to just put a headline on it, the what people call the resistance axis is winning. It's in the ascendant. Uh, and of course, Iran is key to that. Iran is, the, in a sense, the anchor or the foundation of the resistance axis. And you could talk about, you know, King Abdullah of Jordan coined or, or uh, made famous this infamous phrase uh, some years ago, the Shia crescent, the mm-hmm. Shiite crescent, which was reflecting the U.S. agenda of dividing the region along sectarian lines and using sectarianism to divide and rule the region. But I think you could talk about instead not any kind of sectarian crescent, but a resistance crescent Mm. that uh, reaches from Iran across uh, through Syria, through Lebanon, and down to Palestine, particularly Gaza. And of course, there's more to it than that. But it is growing in strength. It's growing in confidence. Uh, Iran has withstood now more than four decades of total isolation and sanctions by the United States and its its allies and, of course, the hostility of the local U.S. clients. And now Iran finds that it is it has uh, a lot of friends, um, China, mm-hmm. uh, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, <laughs> as of just a few uh, weeks or months ago, when the Saudis and Iranians reconciled in very significantly, a Chinese-brokered agreement. And this portends a massive shift in the region. So, of course, to go back more to your question, one of the key motivators of the war on Syria was to break the resistance, particularly Hezbollah in Lebanon, because Syria is rightly seen as the hinterland and the the strategic depth of the resistance in Lebanon. So the neocons, Israel and all and and their allies in the region wanted to break Syria so that they could break the resistance in Lebanon. And they failed to do that. So uh, we've also seen, 
you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about these things too, but it's not just the, the, the very significant and central Saudi-Iranian reconciliation, but we've also seen a reconciliation between, uh, or, or let's say a, a further warming of relations between the resistance in Gaza, Hamas uh, in particular, and Iran, which had been strained because of the, um, the, the fact that for at least some period at the beginning, uh, Hamas was uh, sort of on the other side from Iran and Syria in the, the proxy war. But I think at a certain point, Hamas realized that was a mistake and they sort of shifted to a more neutral position. And now they're very much uh, fully back in... in um, on good terms with Iran, uh, and from a Palestinian resistance sense a perspective, that makes perfect sense because Iran is the only country that we know of that uh, actively that puts its money where its mouth is when it <laughs> comes to supporting pa- completely legitimate Palestinian military resistance. So it would be uh, very. Uh, uh, unwise for the Palestinians to alienate Iran in that sense. They have common interests, common views uh, on uh, the need for resistance. And that opens up, I think, great possibilities for uh, liberation in the region that we haven't seen in decades or didn't seem possible for decades. Right. That, no, exactly. I mean, we are going to get a, into elaborating on a, a few of those points you raised, but just very quickly, uh, I wanted to share a couple of examples of people who are upset. Serious return to the Arab League. Um, this one is, I mean, this is one of my, honestly, I got to say, I like this guy. I know I'm not supposed to, but I appreciate his tweets. His name is Bilal Abdul Karim. He's this American. I think he's originally from New York who went to go live in Idlib and do like basically PR for Al Nusra at some point until I think they got into some sort of fight. Um, but that doesn't matter. He's very upset about Assad being welcomed back into the Arab League. For those who are just listening, I'm showing this tweet by him. It said, it says, Assad is welcomed back into the Arab League after killing a million Muslims and displacing half of the Syrian population. And then he goes on to add the filthy Saudi and Emirati governments pushed for his return to legitimacy. May Allah publicly humiliate everyone who worked to bring this day about. Um, this guy also like basically was like a Qatari propagandist, um, mostly working for doing PR for groups in Idlib that were pro, like were you know backed by the Qataris. So it makes sense he would be calling Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis filthy uh, for bringing Syria back into the fold, which is absolutely true. They did. I just also thought it was funny that he accused Assad of killing a million Muslims. I'm not quite sure that there have been a million people killed in the war on Syria. So um, I'm not sure where he got that number, but I just wanted to show that. And then this other one by, you know, another (laughs) interesting character. This is one Charles Lister, um, who's been quite the regime changer, works at the Middle East Institute, uh, which I believe receives a pretty significant amount of funding from the Emiratis, if I'm not mistaken, possibly the Saudis. Regardless, obviously he's on a different page than them and he did this entire explainer. It's a five minute long video explainer. And I thought it was funny he did this because he had he the only outlet he did could do it for was Fox News, um, where he you know wags his finger about the Arab League's decision to readmit Assad, uh, and claims it has all but destroyed U.S. leverage on Syria policy. 
if the Biden administration ever decided to try using it, that is. Uh, so he's very upset about it. And I, honestly, I'm just gloating in a way for people who really did do as much propaganda as they could to try to like collapse this country. And I mean, he's really on the top uh, when it comes yeah. to that. Yeah, um, I mean, Lister was, ahead, yeah. of course, Lister, of course, had the job when working for all these sort of uh, Gulf funded and, and uh, weapons industry funded think tanks of vetting the various jihadist groups to receive, <laughs> uh, you know, support and aid and then doing PR for them, whitewashing them and, um, you know, sort of trying to uh, improve their image when the kinds of atrocities they were involved in would would make it through the the media the you know the media which was almost uniformly giving the party line on syria and he would have to do damage control for those groups but i suppose charles lister and uh, was it bilal abdul karim yes their mistake is that they're true belie- they were true believers yes they they yes. thought this was for real that it was really about whatever they said it was about instead of about us hegemony and maintaining us control in the region basically exercises of raw power that's what it was about the saudis went along with it for that reason because mm-hmm. the saudis were dependent on the us and when the us is strong then the saudis are in a strong position the same with the Emiratis, the same with the Qataris. Now the Saudis see that actually tying themselves to the sinking American ship means that they will go down to the bottom of the ocean with the Americans, and the Saudis are looking for a lifeboat, and that means reorganizing the geostrategic architecture of the region, bringing the war in Syria to an end, Bringing the war in Yemen to the end, which, of course, is another American war started by Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. and uh, as the Syrian war was started by Barack Obama, um, and uh, the, the Saudis see that their better options, their better future lies with a completely different approach, one that recognizes that Washington is 7,000 miles away and can't come to your rescue if you get in trouble, Mm -hmm. whereas Iran is always going to be right next door, Syria is right next door, you're not that far away from Russia, you're on the same continent, you're in the middle of the Eurasian continent where China is a growing power and growing influence and bringing great development and opportunity to countries all over the world through the Belt and Road Initiative. And what do the Americans bring to the region? You know, what what do they bring, really? This is not a rhetorical question. Uh, and so I think not just Saudi Arabia, but other countries look at this and they say, the Saudis aren't, uh, sorry, the Chinese aren't sailing aircraft carriers everywhere and threatening us. They're, they're building 8,000 schools in Iraq. They're building bridges and ports and airports and hospitals all over the world. And uh, we know the Western propaganda uh, tried for years to claim that all these countries that were benefiting from these Chinese infrastructure were in a so-called debt trap to try to uh, uh, remove the luster of 
mm-hmm. development that uh, you know, I, I'm speaking to you right now from Jordan. And you just, if you're in the streets of Amman, you see now Chinese cars everywhere. And this is a new thing. I mean, a couple of years ago, you would see a couple of Chinese cars. Now Chinese cars are everywhere. I've, I haven't driven one, but they look good. They do electric cars. They are much uh, less expensive. Uh, I wish we weren't so dependent on cars here in Jordan around the world. But there is that uh, sense that China provides something. People aren't buying Cadillacs and Chevrolets anymore. You don't right. see those. Yeah. Uh, people, uh, when you buy an air conditioner for your house, you don't buy an American air conditioner. You buy one made in China, almost certainly. And that's true for almost everything now. So China is the world's industrial powerhouse. It's also building infrastructure. It uh, seeks partnership with countries. You know, you tell this to people in the United States and they say, oh, you're repeating Chinese propaganda. But you just have to look at what's happening. Yeah. And, 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 and it speaks for itself. And I think when governments around the world look at this and they look, look at what they're being offered by the different camps as the United States insists on dividing the world into camps, they're getting something much more attractive really from China. Yeah. And, you know, I will will say like I'll I'll hear people hit back with, oh, like some Chinese company came in and exploited this resource here or there, whether it's like in some country in Latin America or, um, you know, some country in Africa or, you know, we see like the Chinese are starting to exploit oil resources in places like Iraq and Yemen. Um, And you will hear like, you know, anecdotes from individuals about, oh, like a Chinese company came in and did this and there was like corruption here. But, you know, one thing I think is really important to remember, because those stories, of course, do exist. I mean, China's not perfect. All its companies aren't perfect. But one thing you'll hear, I think it was Fred Mbembe, who is the leader of the Socialist Party in Zambia, who said that Africa doesn't have a China problem. It has a capitalism problem. And so when you do have like deals that, you know, have corruption involved in them or local elites are, you know, doing funny business with certain Chinese companies, you also have to remember that's happening in the context of that, you know, like a country like Iraq already has a very corrupt industry that no matter what countries companies are dealing with, that's what it's going to look like. So I just want to point that out, too, because I oh, I constantly hear that um, that accusation is that, oh, like this one mining company in South Africa that's Chinese did this. And it's like, yeah, but what are South African leaders negotiating with and on what terms and who's getting paid for that? You also have to remember the local context, right? Regardless of all that, it's true. China is building infrastructure and we are going to get into what China specifically is doing in the Middle East that makes the uh, Americans so upset. Uh, and, as um, if, yeah. and, and as if American and European countries were not corrupt and are not yeah. corrupt and exploitive right. and controlling. And, you know, the whole term, but the, the origin of the uh term banana republic comes from the control that american corporations exercised over countries in central america the the chiquita banana company these were uh, states basically that run as puppets of american corporations and american capitalism so 
corruption is something that has to be fought. But the idea that these that corruption is somehow uniquely Chinese, when China China certainly has corruption, they punish it. Unlike the United States, in China they'll actually send billionaires and senior government officials to prison for corruption. They actually impose the death penalty for corruption, which I totally oppose. They oppose the death penalty. But how many American CEOs of banks or major corporations or Mm -hmm. American uh, leaders have gone to prison for corruption? So I've said this before. In the United States, most of the corruption is legalized. Yes. So it's... The idea that so th- there are all these uh, stories that are told that are designed to uh, concern troll about the fact that China is rising uh, economically, politically, and it's something that people in much of the world are embracing because it's bringing them major material benefits and changes to their life. Post-World War II decolonization, there was all that there was this period of optimism after the initial independence of countries across Asia and Africa that had been destroyed and colonized for decades or centuries by Europe and uh, the West. But that was quickly dashed because those countries fell into a real debt trap through neocolonialism, through loans, massive loans, massive debt traps from Western banks and governments, where for decades they were paying most of their national uh, income to service debts they couldn't afford, and they weren't getting anything. They weren't developing. The infrastructure wasn't keeping up with the population growth. And now these countries have a chance to finally exercise not just nominal political independence, but real economic sovereignty. And the West is freaking out about it. It's something they can't tolerate. The the president of the European Commission, the head of the EU, basically, Ursula von der Leyen. Oh, her. I can't. I like it. I cringe. We could do a whole show about her. Just her, yeah. But she said the other day, she made the statement that, that that Europe and the West, I think this was in the context of the G7 summit that, that uh, happened in Japan a few days ago. She said the West has to offer countries around the world, countries in Africa and Asia, something attractive, a better deal than China, so that they'll come over to us. Well, first of all, there's nothing you're going to offer as the EU that, you know, they, they can't even bail themselves out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you have to offer. You don't bring anything. You, you, you bring sort of these fake women's empowerment programs and workshops to countries around the world. You're not building ports and airports and schools. I mean, they'll do these little tiny projects, but they're not doing very much. Secondly, you bring the EU, you bring this racist, 
dominating attitude. Joseph mm -hmm. Burrell, the EU foreign policy chief, said it himself a few months ago that uh, Europe is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle. Right. Mm -hmm. And people in Africa, people in Asia, people in the Arab world don't want that. They, we had that, thank you. We do not want Europeans coming from their garden and telling us how civilized they are and what we have to do in order to get civilized like them. Because we tried that in the 19th century, the 20th century, and before, and no thank you. We don't want to go back to that. But the bigger question is, why does it have to be a competition? Why is it Europe and the West against China and against Russia? As far as I know, the Chinese are willing to cooperate with any country. And Italy, as I understand it, was part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And they have been pressured to, uh, to pull out of it by their so-called Western partners. So, and of course, China has major trade relations with the EU. They don't, China isn't interested in a competition. They're interested in cooperation. They see, you know, the cliche that uh, Barack Obama used when he was uh, first elected and in his first press conference, he was asked what he was going to do for black Americans who are economically at the bottom of the ladder in the United States, wealth-wise, income-wise, job-wise, health-wise, education-wise, due to centuries of systematic oppression in the United States. And his answer was, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> and of course, that meant I'm not going to do... I'm not going to... Exactly. But Barack Obama said it, meaning I'm not going to do anything for black Americans because I don't want to alienate the racist white vote that I depend on. But yeah. I think China actually does believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. And that's their approach in the sense that when you build railroads and roads and ports and schools and infrastructure and training colleges and vocational training across the world, you also increase the opportunity for yourself to trade with these countries. Uh, you provide markets for Chinese goods and Chinese services and, and Chinese solar panels and Chinese cars and Chinese industrial goods and so on. And that could include the, uh, the West if they wanted to. I don't see why they wouldn't want to, except that they have this deep need to dominate and to mm -hmm. be the to be the world's rulers they think it's their natural place the americans call it american exceptionalism and the europeans of course america comes from europe so mm -hmm. you know that that's where it started and they can't let it go and they are freaking out and i think it means they're going to be left behind i think that's a really good point and i think that we also see just the juxtaposition between the U.S. response versus the Chinese response to even just Syria returning to the Arab League, right? I, I, you could in some ways credit uh, China's participation and helping negotiate this detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran for sort of like kicking off these many different uh, rapprochements that we're seeing and then bringing, of course, Syria back into the Arab League. And China's applauding that. Russia's applauding that. They're basically playing, I would say, like a very responsible 
a diplomatic role in what's been a very volatile and chaotic region, chaos that the U.S. has, of course, contributed dramatically to. And then the U.S. response has been to have Congress uh, push this, you know, this bill called the Assad Anti-Normalization Act, which, of course, aims to uh, prohibit the U.S. from normalizing ties with Assad, um, on top of also tightening sanctions against the Assad government and preventing it from finding so-called loopholes to survive financially, which is basically a threat to place sanctions on any countries that do any business with Syria, meaning its own allies. I mean, that's the threat. The underlying threat here is that the U.S. might sanction like Saudi Arabia or the UAE should they participate in helping to rebuild Syria. Whether they'd actually do that, we have to wait and see. I do want to raise something. I think there's you wrote this excellent piece that I'm going to get to in a second, but I think it's so interesting that we're at a moment where Saudi Arabia and Iran, after so long of Saudi Arabia being used as this weapon by the United States against Iran, have now normalized relations. And all this time, we were expecting something very different to happen because mm. Israel was right. lobbying for normalization with Saudi Arabia for so long. And I think they thought they were very close. The U.S. was pushing for this as well. A lot of us thought that was what was going to happen next. And then we saw the opposite happen. We see Israel or Saudi Arabia not normalizing with Israel, but rather normalizing with Iran. Um, and I'm curious what you think is behind that decision. You know, I have my own thoughts on that, but I actually, you did write a piece on this, which I think was so uh, incredible. I actually want to put it up on screen because I encourage people to go check it out. Uh, I love the title of it. It's called Why the Saudis Have Called Off Their Israeli Wedding. It's at the Electronic Intifada. I will link to it in uh, the description. Uh, and Ali, you wrote this like, you, you published this like a month ago, but all of it still stands. Um, so concise and just point by point really gets to the heart of it. Um, and I, before I, I, I want you to talk about this piece, um, but first I just want to mention something that I thought was really interesting. This came out around the time that your piece was published. Uh, Netanyahu had given this interview to a former court or her former anchor at CNBC, who's no longer there, called Hadley Gamble, um, for reasons that we don't need to discuss. But uh, in this interview, this very like sympathetic towards Netanyahu interview, she asked him about the Saudi-Iran detente, and I'm quoting Netanyahu. He says in this interview, "Those who partner with or the, those who partner with Iran partner with misery. Look at Lebanon. Look at Yemen. Look at Syria." look at Iraq. And I thought that statement was really revealing because these are all countries that have been destroyed over the last several decades by U.S. imperialism, by wars, proxy wars carried out by U.S. client states in the region. So I saw the statement as what sounded like um, a sort of coded threat to Saudi Arabia. But all that said, can you talk a bit about uh, your piece here? Why did the Saudis call off, as you put it, their Israeli wedding. Yeah, I mean, we've already touched on it, which yeah, is that the, the, well, I'll put it this way. What's the logic? If you're a U.S. client regime like the Saudis have been since 1945, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, and so on, Bahrain, of course, uh, hosting the U.S. Sixth Fleet and so on, What's the logic of normalizing with Israel? It's to please Washington, because the more you please Washington, the more you serve Washington, the more you hope they will protect you. 
So if your strategy, if your only strategy is to, to, to seek the protection of Washington, then normalization with Israel makes a great deal of sense. But if you decide, as the Saudis seem to have decided, that you don't want to put all your eggs in the Washington basket anymore because you don't think the United States is ready, willing, or able to protect you anymore, then normalization with Israel loses its luster and the costs of it start to outweigh the benefits. And I think that's exactly the calculation the Saudis made. And you're right that we expected it to happen. Benjamin Netanyahu expected it to happen. He was out of power for a year and a half or so. And when he came back to government uh, in December, at the end of December, he was very confidently proclaiming that, you know, normalization with Saudi Arabia is next and it's going to be great and it's going to transform the region. And this was going to be his magic bullet for all his political problems because it was going to be only Benjamin Netanyahu can bring these great prizes for Israel. And the so-called Abraham Accords, which were negotiated under the Trump administration where Israel normalized ties with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Morocco, with a couple of other little countries. It was well understood that those were the appetizer, but Saudi Arabia was the main course. <laughs> and Saudi Arabia was, was the big prize and that none of those normalization deals with the smaller states would have happened without the Saudi blessing. So the idea was that the Saudis would come in at the end and this would be a great triumph. And by the way, the Biden administration supported the so-called Abraham Accords and has supported them as much, if not more, than the Trump administration. And Biden has been pushing behind the scenes, the Biden administration, for the Saudis to normalize with Israel and have been getting nowhere. And I read a report from Saeed Araqat of Al-Quds newspaper just before we came on today, citing a, a, an American source who wasn't named, uh, saying that the Biden administration has now given up on pushing the Saudis to normalize with Israel for now because the geo the geo political changes in the region no longer make it realistic in the medium term. And we also saw today, uh, as we're speaking, there was a, uh, a statement from uh, uh, the Israeli National Security Advisor Tzachi Hanegbi just lavishing praise on Saudi Arabia, just saying, uh, you know, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, is a man of wisdom and vision and intelligence, and I don't know what else. Of course, Mohammed bin Salman is the man who, according to the CIA, ordered the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, so I don't know if I would call him a man of uh, those high, uh, those high, um, uh, the high praise the Israeli uh, minister gave him. But clearly this was a sign of desperation by the Israelis who feel jilted. They, they expected 
the Saudis to be at the altar with them, and uh, the Saudis ran off with Iran and and Syria and China and Russia, and I mean that that's sort of a, a simplification, but it, it it kind of is the story. And from a Saudi perspective, it makes a lot of sense because, as we said, the Saudi future is if you're looking at the world from the position of Saudi Arabia, are you really going to to be forever at war with all your neighbors so you can have a chance that the freak show in Washington is going to come and rescue you when you need it? Because remember, the rest of the world looks at the United States and they see a freak show politically. It's it's uh, You've got, on the one hand, Donald Trump, who may be coming back. On the other hand, you've got Biden, who is uh, clearly, who knows who's really running the show in the United States because Biden is, is you know, shaking hands with the air and walking into things and all of that. I, I don't like to make fun of that because clearly he does have serious cognitive difficulties, although everyone is pretending, everyone in the mainstream media is pretending, oh, it's just his age. No, it's not his age. There's people of his age who are, would be ve- perfectly capable of doing that job. Joe Biden isn't capable of doing that job. And then they look now at the fact that the United States on the, is on the edge of a financial default. And maybe they will pull together some deal uh, to, to spare the United States from defaulting on its debts this time, but what about next year? And what about the year after that? Uh, of course, in the background of this too, we talked about is Afghanistan, mm-hmm. where yet another American puppet regime as recently as August of uh, 21 collapsed. Ukraine isn't going well for the United States. Despite all the promises, Ukraine is losing the war. So you look at the world from a Saudi perspective or from any perspective, you say, these people just aren't a good bet. Plus, so, you know, they don't even bring us anything positive in terms of development, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of economic opportunities. Saudi Arabia and many other countries will be saying we have this huge youth population. They need jobs. They need opportunities. They need training. There are all sorts of things countries can do with China that the United States and certainly not the Europeans are offering. So I just think it, 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 uh, you can say one thing about Mohammed bin Salman is that he's canny enough to see that. Clearly, he, he is not going to be anyone's puppet. And in a sense, that was unexpected because after the Khashoggi horror, the utter horror of that murder, the idea was, oh, he's going to have to come cap in hand to the Americans to rehabilitate him. And it's actually the Americans going cap in hand to him. I, th- I think in that article, I uh, quote uh, Lindsey Graham, the uh, neocon senator from South Carolina who had promised to turn uh, Mohammed bin Salman into a pariah and he was going to wage a bipartisan, uh, you know, not a literal war against Saudi Arabia, but a political war. 
And there he was. He went to Saudi Arabia. He praised Mohammed bin Salman. He thanked Saudi Arabia for ordering uh, a couple of dozen Boeing airliners that are manufactured in South Carolina. And that's the story. It's the Americans. Joe Biden went back last year before the midterms uh, to the Saudis. Please lower the oil price. Help us out. Uh, we have our gas prices are too high in the U.S. And the Saudis said no. And uh, so it's a totally changed political situation in the region. And it's a, it's a changing politi political situation globally. So that And that affects, of course, not just our region, uh, but the world as a whole. But in our region, I think it also does change the equation with respect to Israel-Palestine. Yes, because, that's what I want to say. I, I yeah, love to, so. like, and I want, I, want to, I want to frame it this way for those who are like watching. It's like, what you're about to talk about here is so important in the sense of like, we're talking about a multipolar world here. We're talking about, you know, China, it, mostly a China. I mean, we're talking about a rising China that offers all of these different forces and countries, a different partner besides the U.S., leverage against the U.S. So how does that, yeah, how does that impact uh, the situation in Israel-Palestine? I mean, obviously China isn't, you know, uh, recognizing one state and, we, you know, we want one state, with what we want, which is one state with democratic rights for everybody and end to apartheid, all these kinds of things. It's not like we're hearing this rhetoric from China. So for those who are skeptical, how is this beneficial for Palestine? Yeah, the Chinese approach to Palestine is uh, very much in line with international law, UN resolutions, two-state solution. Uh, so there's nothing there that particularly excites me in terms of Chinese mm -hmm. rhetoric. The point, I think, is not that China or Russia or any other rising country shares my views about Palestine. It's that they don't share the views of the United States. Mm -hmm. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.